All right, who's ready to be done with the dinging sermon bumper? Anybody feeling like it's time to put that one away? Well, it ends today, I'm glad to tell you. My name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Noblesville campus. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some under the seats around you. I also want to welcome all of our Gen Kids into the room today. We've put some kids' Bibles under the seats for you. And the passage that we're going to look at this morning is on page 1296. So maybe Mom and dad can help you get there. But as you're turning there, I wanted to tell you that yesterday my family traveled to Paris, Illinois. That's where my in laws live, and I have a lot of fun telling people that, uh, that they live in Paris. And that always sounds a lot bigger than it really is. Uh, Paris, Illinois, if you don't know, is only about two hours away from here, about a two hour drive. And yesterday, as we were making that drive, I was reminded of something that happened several years ago uh, as we were taking that same route, I'm sure, to go and visit uh, my in-laws. We were out in the middle of nowhere on a stretch of road that was just wide open spaces in the middle of Indiana. And in the distance, there was a, a row of maybe three or four homes that we could see. But coming from that area was also a, a large amount of smoke billowing up. And we thought, man, is there a house on fire? What's going on? As we got closer to the scene, what we realized was it wasn't a home that was on fire. It was a mini barn in the backyard of one of these homes. And this thing was completely engulfed in flames. I mean, it was obvious this was going to be a total loss, just burned to the ground. But as we got even closer, uh, I'll never forget what we saw as we came up on this scene. What we saw was a, what appeared to be a teenage boy standing, I'm sure, as close as he could get to that fire safely, holding in his hand a garden hose. And I remember thinking to myself, that's not doing anything. But to try as he did, you know, it, it looked like just a little trickle of water coming out on these flames that were probably shooting 20 or 30 feet in the air. It just was such an ironic scene. And I don't say that because I, I wanted to make fun of him. I'm sure he was doing the best that he could with what he had. But it was painfully obvious that what he had wasn't enough. And I got to thinking about my own life. And the fact is, there have been some times in my life, in my ministry, in my family, in my spiritual walk, when it has become painfully obvious that what I have isn't enough. And I just wonder if maybe some of you have ever felt that way. And in those moments, have you ever wondered, why is it that when we talk about God, we talk about his power, we talk about his greatness, and yet it seems like so often we live powerless lives Powerless to overcome sin, powerless to move forward in faith, powerless to ever produce any kind of good fruit in our lives. Why is that? Have you ever felt ineffective or unproductive in your faith? Well, as I mentioned this morning, we're going to finish this series, Life at 2%. And I hope to show you that as followers of Jesus, we have power available to us. I want you to understand very specifically what that power is and then also what it takes to access that power in our lives. But before we get into it, I want you to hear what pastor and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones has to say about this. He says, the most urgent practical question for every Christian is this. Are we aware of the fact that the almighty power of God is working in us? 
do we realize that we are what we are solely and entirely by the grace and the power of God? Do we realize in our own personal lives and experiences that it is this exceeding great power of God that accounts for everything in the Christian life? Lloyd-Jones calls it the most urgent practical question for Christians. Are we aware of the power of God? Are we even aware of what that power is? And that's what we're going to see today in Ephesians chapter 1. Now, the book of Ephesians was written by Paul, and it was written to the church at Ephesus. Now, this was a church that he helped to start. If you didn't know, Paul was a very prolific church planter, and much of the New Testament is uh, made up of letters that he wrote to the churches that he planted. And as you read those letters, what you'll find is that Paul was very faithful in praying for his churches. He uses words like always and constantly and night and day to talk about how he prayed for the people in his churches. And in his letter to the Ephesians, he starts out by telling them what it is he's praying for. Let's look together in verse 17 where he says this. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Paul's prayer for this church was that they would know God better. And he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and, and here it is, this is our focus for this morning, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus was that they would know God better, that they would know his hope, that they would know their inheritance, and that they would know the power of God in their lives. Now, in the following verses, Paul is going to give great detail about what that power is and what it means for us as believers. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, that power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. Now let's pause right there. Because when Paul thinks about the power of God, his mind goes first to the resurrection. Write that down if you're taking notes. We see God's power in the resurrection. And for our kids in the room today, that's a big word, isn't it? Resurrection. It simply means that someone who was dead was then brought back to life. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus. He died on a cross. He was buried in a grave. And then he rose from the dead. He walked out of that grave alive and well. How in the world does something like that happen? Well, it only happens by the power of God. And, and Paul calls that power a mighty strength. Now, if you're one of our gen kids in the room right now, I wonder if you would help me with something. Would you stand up? If you're one of our gen kids, would you stand up right now to help me with something? You know what? I'm kind of having a hard time seeing you. Would you mind standing on your chair? I, it's okay. I'm kind of the boss around here, so you can do it. You can get on your chair, okay? Go on, get on up there. Paul Mumaw's getting up with you. Here's what I want you to do. Would you just flex for us real quick? Show us your muscles. And uh, don't be shy. Kind of look around. Show them to the people around you. Show them what you got. Yeah, man, look at that. We got some really strong kids in the room, don't we? I suspect this one's been working out. Have you been going to the gym a little bit? Now, thanks for helping me with that. You can all sit down. 
But as strong as all of you are, do you know that there's someone who's even stronger than you? My son Josiah thinks it's God, and he would be right, but that's not where I was going. I was going to suggest Mickey Justice, who's sitting in the front row here. Mickey, would you stand up real quick, and would you show us your muscles? Just turn around and show everybody. Can we get, can we get Mickey a hand? Flex it off, Mickey. Now, here's what you might not know about Mickey. Mickey grew up on a farm. And I learned early on that there's a difference between strong and farm boy strong, okay? Mickey grew up wrestling pigs and farm implements. And I'm just going to tell you, you don't want to mess with a farm boy. They'll ruin your day. Now, Mickey's a nice guy. He's not going to hurt anybody, but he is pretty strong. But even as strong as Mickey is, as strong as you kids are, None of us in this room right now have the strength to bring someone back from the dead, do we? I mean, that's just a whole nother level of strong. But again, when Paul thinks about the power of God, the first thing he thinks about is the strength that God used to raise Christ from the dead. And that makes sense because people who die usually stay dead, but not Jesus. He was brought back to life by God's resurrection power. And I want to pause right here to say that if you are skeptical about the Christian faith, if you have questions about Christianity or the Bible or the things that Jesus said, can I just suggest that you begin right here, that you spend time investigating the resurrection? Because if the resurrection is a lie, there really is nothing else to talk about. Tim Keller says it this way. He says, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but on whether or not he rose from the dead. Because if the resurrection happened, and we believe it did, and we have taught on that before on the evidences for the resurrection then we can believe that Christ is who he says he is and we can have hope knowing that we serve a God who defeated death by his great power. So we see God's power in Christ's resurrection. Now Paul goes on in verse 20 and he says this. He says that God seated him, he's talking about Christ, God seated Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet. So write this down. We see God's power in Christ's supremacy. Supremacy. Now, there's another big word for the kids in the room today. That comes from the word supreme. Do we have any kids in the room who like a supreme pizza? Any supreme pizza eaters? Probably most just like cheese. That's what my kids like. But when you get a supreme pizza, what's it got on it? It's got everything, doesn't it? All of it's on there. Supreme means the greatest, the best, the highest. It's all there. And Paul tells us that after Christ was raised from the dead, that God seated him at his right hand on the throne in heaven and that God put everything else under his feet. That means that Christ is the highest. Everything else is below him. He's the greatest. And this is really important for us to remember because it means that when we talk about God's power, 
This isn't just one of the powers in the universe. This is the supreme power in the universe. In fact, it's the power that created the universe. John tells us in the beginning of his gospel that in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was talking about Jesus. And he says that everything that was made was made through him. So understand, there was never a moment when Jesus wasn't fully God. When we think about Jesus, oftentimes what we think about is his life on earth, right? That, that Jesus added humanity to his deity. And we believe that. We believe that he was fully God, but also that he was fully man. His deity was suppressed so that his humanity could be fully expressed. But when God seated Christ at his right hand on the throne in heaven, understand that that was always his rightful place. And it's so easy to forget that because Christ never exalted himself. Have you ever noticed that when you read through the scriptures? Christ never exalted himself. He was always exalting his father. He was always obedient to the father and always acting in humility. But listen, don't miss this. Don't mistake Christ's humility for weakness. It's his supremacy that makes his humility so incredible. That Jesus, though being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But he became nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He was made in human likeness, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. But Paul goes on to tell us in Philippians 2, that because of that, God exalted him to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every single tongue is going to acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So in the midst of the battle and the trials of this life, let's not forget who we serve. Not just a power in the universe. No, we serve the supreme power who created the universe. And God has put all things under his feet. So we see God's power in Christ's supremacy. And then finally, Paul tells us this in verse 22. That God appointed him, again he's talking about Christ, he appointed Christ to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So the third way that we see God's power is in Christ's headship. Write that down. We see God's power in Christ's headship. Christ is the head of the church. He's in charge. Christ is the head of this church. Okay, not Paul Muma, not Ben Kraus, not any man. Christ is the head. He calls the shots. And Paul tells us that the church is his body. And you've probably heard that illustration before because Paul uses it throughout the New Testament, how Christ is the head and the church then is his body. But I want you to hear what John Calvin said about this in his commentary on Ephesians chapter one. He says, this is the highest honor of the church, that until he is united to us, the son of God reckons himself in some measure imperfect. What consolation is it for us to learn that not until we are as one with him does he possess all his parts or wish to be regarded as complete. I mean, that is incredible, isn't it? That in light of Christ's power and his supremacy and his perfection, 
that he chooses to use imperfect people like you and like me to form his body. And all of us have a role to play in the body of Christ. Not all are the same. Some of us are hands. Some of us are feet. I heard Francis Chan say one time that some of you are the appendix. You don't really do anything, but one day you might blow up and take the rest of us down with you, okay? (laughs) Don't be an appendix because you have a vital part to play in the body of Christ. And maybe you've never considered what that part might be. And if that's true of you, I want to encourage you to attend our Wired Workshop coming up this next uh, Friday and Saturday at our Carmel campus. You'll learn how your strengths and your gifts and your story can all come together to advance the kingdom of God. We'd love to have you attend. You can register for Wired on the app or online. And uh, if you know that you want to go, I want you to stop by the Info Hub today. We've got a book to give you even this morning and a packet of information to help you get ready for Wired. But one other thing that's really great about this morning, Abby Knowles is running sound for us. Abby, would you put your hand in the air? And Abby helps lead Wired. Wired workshop for us. So if you have any questions about Wired and how how it works, seek her out. She would love to answer those questions for you. But understand that whatever part you are in the body of Christ, there's not one part that's more necessary than another. I mean, when you think about your own body, which part would you like to live without? Which, Which part of your body would you like to give up? I can tell you that that many of you know I cut my hand on my table saw about a year ago and by the grace of God, I still have my hand and most of my finger, but I did lose, you know, just the tip of that, that middle finger. And even with just that little bit being gone, there is not a single day that goes by that I'm not reminded that that there are things I used to be able to do that now I I either can't do or I just have to do differently because every part of our body is important, isn't it? That's true in the body of Christ as well. That's how it is for us. There's not one part that's better than another. It's all of us coming together under the headship of Christ to build his church and to reach the world. So we see God's power in Christ's resurrection. We see it in his supremacy and we see it in his headship. But on a very practical level, how do we access this power? I mean, if it is available to us as followers of Jesus, Why does it seem that so many Christians live powerless lives? Well, I want you to see before we wrap up this morning that Jesus was actually perfectly clear on this. He told us exactly what we would need to do in order to have the power of God. And to see that, I want to finish this morning in the book of John chapter 15. Uh, If you want to turn there with me or these verses will be on the screen. But here's what Jesus says in verse 5. He tells his disciples, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. And then Jesus says this in verse 8. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Now, here's what's so interesting to me about this passage. John chapters 13 through 18 document what happened on the last afternoon and evening that Jesus spent with his disciples. 
And specifically, John chapters 13 and 14 happened while they were in the upper room. They were eating the Passover meal together. But then at the end of John chapter 14, Jesus says this. He says, come now, let us leave. And so they leave the upper room and they begin making their way toward the Garden of Gethsemane. That's where Jesus is going to be betrayed by one of his own disciples. And that would have been about a 45-minute walk from the traditional uh, site of the upper room to the garden. And we have a picture of the route that Jesus likely took. So you'll see at the, on the left-hand side of the screen there, that's where uh, they believe the upper room was. And Jesus and his disciples made their way through Jerusalem down to the southeast corner of the city and exited the gate there. And then they followed what's called the Kidron Valley to the north. And then up at the top, they crossed the Kidron Valley and into uh, the area of the Mount of Olives where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Now, what we know is that as they're making their way uh, on this journey, all of what happens in John chapter 15, 16, and 17 happens as they're traveling on the way. Because at the beginning of John chapter 18, it tells us that they then crossed the Kidron Valley and entered into the garden. So you have, come now, let us leave, and then they entered the garden. And in between those two things are John 15, 16, and 17. And most scholars believe that as they were traveling this route, they exited the city, they're traveling along the Kidron Valley, that they very likely came across a vineyard. And that as they came across this vineyard, that Jesus did what he so often did. And he used what was in front of him as an illustration for his disciples. He started talking about how he's the vine and, and uh, we're the branches. And I just, I wonder if Jesus maybe took a cluster of grapes in his hand. And, and maybe he held those in front of his disciples and he said, This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit showing yourselves to be my disciples. And what Jesus is saying is, I want your lives to look like this, full of life, full of power, full of fruit. But in order for this to be a reality, we have to abide in him. And what does that mean? What does it mean to remain in Christ? What does it mean to abide in him? Well, Jesus modeled this for us. He modeled it by, by always living by the Holy Spirit, saying no to his flesh and saying yes to the Spirit of God. He was, he was always faithful in prayer. The Bible tells us that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places so that he could pray and be with his Father. Uh, he, he modeled it by reading and knowing God's word. In fact, it tells us that the, uh, the teachers of the law, they were amazed at his knowledge and his wisdom when it came to God's word. And he did it by living a life of obedience before the Father. This is how we remain connected. This is how we abide in Christ. And this is how we access the power of God. And I think the reason why so many Christians move through life just defeated and powerless and fragile not because the power of God isn't available to us or because it's not real. It's because we've disconnected from the vine. And when we do that, our lives end up looking like this. Fruitless, lifeless, useless. Because Jesus made it very clear that apart from him, we could do nothing. So Genesis Church, I just wanna ask you today, in light of all that we've seen, does your life look more like this or does it look more like this? 
And if you are recognizing today that, that your, your life looks more like this, I hope that you have seen this morning that it doesn't have to. In fact, Christ doesn't want it to. He wants your, to, your life to bear much fruit. He wants you to know the incomparably great power of God for those who believe. And so if you are recognizing that, that your life looks maybe more like this this morning, would you also commit to doing something about it? Listen to the words of Paul. Obey the command of Jesus. Remain. Abide. Stop living life on your own power. Maybe it starts just as simply as, as starting a pattern of reading God's word every day. Just get in the word every day. Follow Jesus' example in that. Or perhaps for you, there's an area of your life where you need to stop saying yes to the flesh and start saying yes to the spirit. If there is some pattern of sin in your life, you need to confess it today. Confess it to God, confess it to someone you trust, and break that cycle of sin in your life today. Or maybe you just need to recommit to prayer. Maybe you've gotten lazy in the area of prayer, and it's time today to to stop doing just these one-offs whenever you can find a, a second in your day. And like Jesus, often withdraw to a lonely place to connect with your Father. Whatever it is, you can start today. You can abide today. You don't have to live life at 2%. Because God has made his power available to us. I want to pray for you as we wrap up this morning. Would you close your eyes and bow your heads with me? Father, as we think about the life that Jesus lived, as we think about the example that he gave us, the example of what it means to remain in you, Father, we cannot deny that he lived a life of power, that he lived a life of obedience before you, that his life bore much fruit, because 2,000 years later, here we are, and around the world, the number of people who know the name of Jesus, God, it bears testimony to that power uh, of the Son. Lord, we want that kind of power in our lives. We desire that kind of power, Lord, as we move through our days. And we recognize maybe for the first time this morning that it only comes when we remain, when we abide in you. And so, Father, whatever that next step might be for my brothers and sisters and even for myself here this morning, Lord, would you make it clear by your spirit? And then would you find us faithful to walk that path? Lord, to change some patterns in our life so that we can experience your power and bear much fruit to your glory. That's our desire. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.